Brothers and sisters, please open to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 33. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 33, which we'll be studying from. We will also be studying specifically our text for this evening, Psalm 51. But we begin with Lord's Day 33. We'll be reading from questions 88, 89, and 90. Question 88. What is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Answer. Two things. The dying away of the old self and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying away of the old self? Answer, it is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. Question, what is the coming to life of the new self? Answer, it is the wholehearted joy in God through Christ, and a delight to do every kind of good as God wants us to. We'll also be studying and primarily studying from Psalm 51 this evening. Psalm 51, please open your Bibles there. And as you are opening your Bibles to this passage, I feel the need to say something about the psalm we'll be reading from. Psalm 51 is one of the most famous chapters of the Bible, and for good reason. This psalm is, you might say, a goldmine for the doctrine of repentance. We could spend months or even years only studying from this chapter and still find more to say about this topic. In fact, there are many ministers who have done so. One example for you, Arthur Hildersim, a minister in Britain in the 1600s, gave 152 lectures about this psalm. He only made it to verse 7. And so our goal here tonight is not to, as we read this psalm, study everything that the psalm has to say about repentance. We can't do that. Rather, our goal is to give a bird's eye view and know and understand what is true repentance in the believer's heart. With that in mind, then let us hear the word of the Lord, Psalm 51. To the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me know to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, 
and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous Spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, and a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this evening. Teach us tonight of true repentance. What it means to truly be repentant before our perfect God. And give us a heart of true repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, when I was a young child, I was... Annoying. In fact, it might be said rather honestly, I was a bit of a bully. If you were to ask any of my siblings, they would honestly and very quickly tell you that this is the case. I could often be found pestering my brothers and sisters until they couldn't take it anymore. And so what would happen is they would eventually call out to my mom and dad. They would say, Mom, Dad, Eli's annoying me. My parents would come into the room and sort things out, and they would tell me, Eli, apologize to your siblings. And so I'd sit there and I'd say, well, I'm sorry. In reality, of course, I wasn't sorry at all at the time. I was just annoyed that my siblings had snitched on me. So I'd sit there and I'd put... I'd, apologize, and if confronted about my attitude, I always had an excuse. I would say, well, I said I was sorry. Some of you who are children, I think many of you who have been children, can say that you have either seen or experienced this same false apology in your own lives. You've probably seen the same things happen in your homes hundreds of times in the past. You've likely heard the same excuses or given them. 
Sadly, brothers and sisters, repentance is often thought about in the same terms. Many people think of repentance as simply saying sorry to God and whoever you've hurt for what you've done. But Scripture doesn't define repentance as simply saying sorry. It doesn't look at repentance as a mere verbal apology. It doesn't even define repentance as a mere feeling sorry for what you've done. So neither should we. We should not define repentance in this small and limited way. But this brings up the question. How should we then define repentance? If repentance is not simply saying sorry for what we've done, what is repentance after all? When we look at our own lives and at our own hearts, what is true repentance? Have we, in fact, come before the Lord in true repentance? Because if repentance is more than an apology, there are millions of people who call themselves Christians today who are not living in true repentance of their sins. So I ask you tonight, congregation, what is true repentance? Well, here before us this evening, we have an example of true repentance in the life of David. David is brought to an awareness of his sin and he repents from it. And so, for a few brief moments tonight, congregation, let's go through this psalm to compare the repentance that we see in David, a true repentance. Scripture tells us and compare it to our own lives and our own hearts to examine and see if we are truly in repentance of our sins. We begin in verse 1-6 through with the fact that repentance rejects sin. Repentance rejects sin. In the preface before the passage before us tonight, we're told that this psalm was written after David sinned with Bathsheba. And Nathan had convicted him about his sin. Now this event occurs in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We won't be reading from that passage tonight. 2 Samuel 11 and 12. If you get the opportunity, please during this week, read from that passage and compare it to what happens here in Psalm 51. But if we look at the context of David's life in this moment, and if we examine what his life would like, was like, we would see that his life prior to this was a life of great blessing. 
Over the past few years in David's life, he's received blessing upon blessing upon blessing from God. They've seemed to come thick and fast. They've been heaped upon each other, one after the other. Let me walk you through 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 5. David is accepted as the only king of Israel after a civil war that's been very bloody. It's taken many years. And finally, 2 Samuel 5, the entire nation comes to terms with the fact that David is king. They come to him and say, you will be our king. Let's make a covenant together. 2 Samuel 5, continuing on. David takes Jerusalem and makes it his capital in the span of a few verses. 2 Samuel 6, David takes Jerusalem, excuse me, David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, a sign that God has blessed him. 2 Samuel chapter 7, blessing of blessings, God gives David a covenant. And he declares, for eternity there will be one who will sit upon your throne. God speaks to David of Christ. And he continues and he speaks about the fact that God will never abandon His own. 2 Samuel 8, 9, and 10. God gives David a series of stunning victories against his enemies to the point that even Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, his mortal enemy, is now eating at his table. His enemies have been so cowed before him that the grandson of his greatest enemy has now become as one of his friends. All these blessings that God heaps upon David makes it all the more stunning and saddening that in chapter 11, David's greed and lust leads him first to adultery and then to conspiracy and finally to the murder of what may have been one of his closest friends, what certainly was one of his greatest military advisors. And it's after this that Nathan meets with David, convicts him over his sin with Bathsheba. It's in this context that David writes. David has been confronted by his sin, recognizes the absolute heinousness of what he has done, and now he turns to God, and God has declared that he will receive discipline But David is not concerned first with discipline. But he's first concerned about his status with God. He turns to God and let me ask you congregation, how does David respond to the conviction of sin? How does he respond to the accusation God levels against him? Does he dismiss it? Does he blow it off? Does he ignore it? Does he give a million excuses as to why he did what he did? Well, no. David doesn't dismiss his sin. 
On the contrary, verse 1 and 2 shows us that He pleads earnestly and heartfelt for forgiveness. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to Your loving kindness, according to the multitude of Your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice that David pleads for forgiveness in no fewer than than four ways. He says, have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me. And each time, he points to the perfection and the mercy and the grace of God. Notice that there's not a word of excuse here. David doesn't do what children so often do when they're found sinning. He doesn't say, well, it's because of this or that. He doesn't say, well, if you'd seen Bathsheba in that day. No. He turns to God's mercy. He appeals to God's grace. He knows that if there is to be found forgiveness, it is only to be found in the mercy of God. You see, David knows how deep his sin is. Not only does he not dismiss his sin, he doesn't even spend any time trying to downgrade it and make it look any smaller. Notice, congregation, that according to the the prelude or the, the, post, the prescript of our psalm, David writes this psalm for the entire nation. He doesn't pause to hide his sin. Far from it, he brings it out. Confesses it openly. Rejecting what he has done and, and pleading for God's grace and not downgrading his sin in any regard. Verse 3-5 through shows us very plainly that David has no deception about how deep his sin is and how awful it is. He begins by recognizing that he has sinned. He says in verse 3, I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me. This sin he's committed with Bathsheba is something he can't forget. He can't ignore. And now that God has convicted him about his sin, it's as though David is constantly reminded of it. It hangs in front of his eyes. He sees his sin. And he can't forget it. Beyond that, he doesn't only recognize his sin. He recognizes who it is he sinned against. He says in in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Again, congregation, remember what David has done. David has murdered a man. He has caused other soldiers to fall into sin, conspiring with them. He has lied to Uriah by 
by trying to convince Uriah that the child is his. He has taken Uriah's wife. And in the midst of all of this sin, he says, against you have I sinned. And you only. What a strong argument to make. To David, all of his sin pales in comparison to the sin he's committed against God. Because all sin is sin against God. So David can do nothing but agree with God's wrath against him. We see in these verses not a single hint of concern that David has for the discipline he's about to face. Nathan has come before David and given him three pieces of discipline. Nathan has said that he will never again have peace in his house. Nathan has said that all his wives and and the cause of his sin will be taken from him and be cause of great shame. Nathan has shown some degree or another that the sins of the father will be the sins of the son. But David isn't concerned about that. His thought here in verse 1 through 6 is that of his relationship with God. The grave error and sin he has brought against his Savior. Thomas Watson says about this verse that even if there were no conscience to smite, no devil to accuse, no hell to punish, yet the repentant soul would still be grieved because of the offense done to God. David does not here say the sword, or that is the punishment, is ever before me, but my sin. My sin is ever before me. David realizes furthermore that this sin, verse 6, is in the very fiber of his being. From an infant, he's been a sinner. Even before he was born, his heart was in rebellion against God. He's not excusing what he's done. Far from it. This sin has been since he was a youth. He recognizes how horrible it is that at every moment in his life, he has been prone to rebellion against God. The fact that he was disposed towards sin from infancy, that this is in his nature, is only more proof against him. And so, congregation, David rejects this sin. He repudiates it. He wants nothing to do with the sin anymore. So, brothers and sisters, compare your hearts to the heart of David this evening. The Heidelberg Catechism, which we read this evening, sums up that the first part of repentance is the dying away of the old self. It says that repentance is to be genuinely sorry for sin, more and more to hate and run away from it. 
This is what David's heart proclaims. He sees how sinful he's been. And he's sorry for it. But this sorrow is more than a simple feeling. It is a recognizing that he has offended the infinite and eternal God. So he hates his sin. He runs away from it. He repudiates it completely. Instead of making excuses, instead of a half-hearted apology, he looks upon his sin with the hatred that he ought. But what about your hearts, congregation? Do you dismiss sin in your hearts? What do you do and what occurs in your heart when someone brings your sin before you? How do you respond in your heart of hearts truly? Do you grudgingly say, I'm sorry, I guess? Are you angry at the person who rightly accuses you of your sin? Do you make excuses for yourself when you read God's law? And when you hear of the ways that you have offended the perfect, righteous God? When you look at your heart, do you see the hatred of sin that the Heidelberg Catechism describes for us? And that David here shows. This is something that should concern every one of us. Some of you certainly here tonight have fallen into sin, perhaps grievous sins recently. Know this then. True repentance does not consist in simply saying sorry. It is in the first place here a hatred of sin. Fleeing from it. Looking to the mercy of Jesus Christ. Look to your hearts then. But in the second place, congregation, repentance reaches towards the Savior. Repentance reaches towards the Savior. And this we see especially in verse 7 through 12. You see, congregation, David demonstrates the hatred he has for his sin. But this is not the end of the story. As we continue the passage before us in verse 7 through 12, David makes it clear he's not simply sorry for sin. No. He reaches out to Christ as His Savior. Verse 7 demonstrates this very clearly to us. David seeks salvation through Christ's work. Look at verse 7. It says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, congregation, hyssop was used in the Old Testament rituals. It was uh, an herb. And in fact, I think there's hyssop here in Michigan as well. It's a fairly common herb. And it was especially in Israel. And it was used in these Old Testament rituals specifically and especially to sprinkle blood on the people and on objects in order to make them holy. The people of Israel in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22, used hyssop to paint the doorposts of their houses for the Passover. Leviticus 14 likewise speaks of sprinkling blood with hyssop 
on someone to cleanse them of impurity. But most importantly, when God made His covenant with the people of Israel, Hebrews 9 tells us that Moses used hyssop to sprinkle blood and water on the people. And the author of Hebrews declares, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. It's in this context, the sprinkling of blood that David speaks. In each of these passages, the blood of a sacrifice covering the people is what made the people acceptable before God. And when they sprinkled blood on objects, furthermore, it was to make these objects holy and able to be in God's presence. So in this verse, David's recognizing that there must be some sacrifice. Some payment for sin. David knows that God is just. David knows that God cannot simply dismiss sin. David knows furthermore that no normal sacrifice will please God. Verse 16 shows us this. David knows that the only sacrifice which will please God must come from and be supplied by God Himself. Notice who is doing the sprinkling here, congregation. David doesn't call for a priest and say, you know, have a priest come and sprinkle me with blood. He doesn't, as the Catholics do, go to some confession booth where he sits and, and speaks to a priest. No. He calls to God and says, to God, sprinkle me with hyssop. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. In the second place, however, David seeks salvation despite discipline. Look at verse 8. He says, Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Again in 10 and 11, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Remember once more the context of what's going on. David has been promised for forgiveness. But he's also been told that he'll receive discipline from God. Once more, however, we see here, David is not concerned about the discipline. His heart is set on his relationship with God. He does not want to be separated from God. He does not want to lose the felt presence of the Holy Spirit. He has seen how Saul, because of his sin, lost the power of the Holy Spirit as king. And he thinks, my God surely loves me. And he turns to God and says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now as believers, we cannot leave, lose the Holy Spirit. It is true. But nonetheless, it is certainly possible for a time to feel nothing of God's presence. Some of you certainly have felt this in backsliding into sin. 
David does not want this. He does not want to lose the presence of God in his life, or the felt presence, rather, of God in his life. So he declares, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Discipline me, but do not leave me. He looks to God. To God alone for salvation. To God alone for peace. The most important point here, congregation, the point I'm trying to get across is that David isn't looking to himself for forgiveness. He isn't bargaining with God for it. He isn't attempting to pay for his sin. No, he pleads with God to look away from his sin, to cleanse him from his sin by the blood of Christ. He wants the presence of God back in his life. He looks to the same God who is punishing him for his sin and declares that only God can forgive him and cleanse him. And what about your hearts, brothers and sisters? Do you look anywhere other than to Christ for your salvation? Some people think that feeling sadness over their sins is enough. I have known many, many people, and certainly you have known many people who inside or outside the church find it very easy to say, woe is me, I'm a sinner, and that's it. They expect some sort of pat on the back for what they've said. This is not enough. No single person in history has been saved simply by crying over sin. Hebrews 12 verse 17 tells us that Esau found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Likewise, there are some people who think that looking to saints or to the Virgin Mary or or to the things that they can do with their hands will somehow give them or make them acceptable before God. These people go to confession. They pray the Lord's Prayer. They give alms to the church. But these things are not true repentance. They in themselves cannot save you. Acts 4.12 tells us that only in the name of Christ is there any salvation. So David looks to Christ. Some, on the other hand, think that by harming themselves they can somehow receive forgiveness. This is especially common in Catholic context, but it is true throughout the world that people think that somehow by harming themselves and doing some sort of punishment on themselves, that God will accept them. An extreme example of this in the Philippines, it is somewhat common for people to actually crucify themselves, thinking that somehow this will make them acceptable before God. Brothers and sisters, neither false tears nor actions nor self-flagellation can bring salvation. True repentance looks to Christ. So I ask you, do you know Him? Do you know Christ? Do you reach out to Christ and trust in Him alone? Look to Him, brothers and sisters. See what He suffered for your sake. 
See the blood that was poured out for you. How Christ was beaten, mocked, spit upon, whipped, crucified, died, and resurrected, and sits at the right hand for your sake today. It is His blood sprinkled upon you and His blood alone that can give salvation. Have you then been cleansed with hyssop? Have you been washed in His blood? If you can truthfully and faithfully answer yes to this question, congregation, then what a joy it is to know. But if you can't, Look at David here. True repentance does not come merely from feeling or saying sorry. It comes from looking to Christ. Finally, congregation, repentance does not only reject sin, does not only reach for the Savior, Repentance also rejoices with song and sacrifice. And we'll spend less time on this point. But verse 13 through 19 shows this to be the case. David looks to God and he anticipates forgiveness from Him. He anticipates visible examples or visible proof of this forgiveness. And so he says, verse 13 through 15, Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Notice how each verse he pleads once more to God for forgiveness, but then he says, in anticipation of this forgiveness, I will praise you. I will teach others. Look at the verses or the, the, the actions of David's verses here. Teaching transgressors, singing aloud, showing forth your praise. Every action of David in these three verses related to David's mouth, what he says as a response to his repentance and as a response to forgiveness, rather. From this we see, brothers and sisters, that repentance results in praise. A change of life in the way we speak. That the believer who comes to Christ and who in true repentance receives salvation responds with new life in the way he speaks and the way he tells others about his life. More than that, however, David offers the sacrifice of his heart in verse 16 through 19. He recognizes once more actions can't save him. The blood of bulls and goats can never save him. We've already seen that, but David knows that forgiveness of sins doesn't come from any sacrifice he himself can offer. He recognizes, on the other hand, for those who have received forgiveness. Repentance also means living a life of thankfulness in our actions. He says in verse 18-19, through 19, Do good in your pleasure to Zion. Build the walls 
of Jerusalem, then you will be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. And Likewise, speaking of his own heart, he says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. And so, in David's speech and in David's actions, he recognizes that in repentance and in forgiveness of sins, his life will change. Our Heidelberg Catechism reading for this evening speaks of repentance as in part, a wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and a delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. And this is what David demonstrates for us tonight. A joy in his speech. A joy in his actions. A heart which is broken over its sin, yet which nonetheless rejoices in salvation. So again, I return to you. Compare your hearts to the heart of David here, brothers and sisters. True repentance of sin involves not only hatred of sin, but also the love of the Savior and a life that demonstrates this love. It is not merely a putting to death of our sin. It is also a bringing to life day by day by the work of the Holy Spirit with good works, rejoicing, for what we've received. Finding life in Christ and death in all else. Brothers and sisters, David recognized his sin. He reached towards his Savior. He reacted and rejoiced with expectation for God's forgiveness with song and sacrifice, with his words and with his will. So I ask you one last time. You, congregation, how will you come before God when you sin? Will you come before Him as a child who is angry that others point out his sin? Will you come before Him and simply say, I'm sorry, I guess? Or will you, as David does here, Look away from your sin to the glory of Christ to live a changed life. Let that be our prayer for every one of us. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray for true repentance. We do not, we cannot know the hearts of those who are here tonight. We can only know our own hearts, and so, Lord, we come before you and we pray for forgiveness. We pray that you would daily grant us true repentance, that our hearts would put to death sin, would be renewed in the spirit of our minds, as Ephesians 4 says, and would continually put on the new man, looking to Christ for our life. We pray this, Lord, knowing that you are merciful and gracious and kind and you rejoice to forgive repentant sinners. In Jesus' name.
Amen.